You're listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. At Southwide Baptist Church, our mission is to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and thereby lead people to worship God authentically, connect in biblical community, grow in Christian maturity, and multiply disciples and churches both locally and globally. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. Now let's join Pastor Jeremy for today's message. If you have a copy of God's Word, let me invite you to turn with me to Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2, as we continue our walk through the book of Habakkuk. As you're turning there, let me just um, say to you uh, a very big thank you for your love and your prayers this week, your encouragement. Um, Most of you know uh, at this point that my uh, grandmother, my mom's mom, um, who has been here many times, for various things uh, for church, and, and many of you have had the opportunity to be with her and uh, share in her life. Uh, she went on to be with the Lord this week. Um, it was very unexpected uh, to some degree. She um, has been in about a five-year battle with COPD, and um, she um, took her last breath this past uh, it's all running together. Tuesday, Wednesday morning, 2 a.m. And uh, we were able to be there with her as a family. And it was sweet and quick. The Lord was gracious and thankful for that. Um, at the same time, it's been very difficult. And so thank you for your love and your prayers, um, words of encouragement, various messages on Facebook. Um, Without those prayers, without the love of our church family, um, I don't know where we would be. At the same time, uh, I would ask this morning for um, for your continued prayer because we were very close and um, I'm still processing. And sometimes <laughs> um, you're the minister and other times you're the one ministered to. And... Um, this is a season of my life that I need ministering to. Um, and so I'd ask for your, your grace and your prayers. Um, someone asked me, are you going to be able to preach on Sunday? And I made the statement, um, I hope so. <laughs> But I know this morning that there is no place that she would rather me be than standing in the pulpit declaring God's Word. Um, She joined us on our live stream last week. And I I told Robert, even as we spoke a few nights ago, I told Robert, even as God changed my direction somewhat and we began to talk about what it means for us to have been breathed into the breath of life, that God breathed into man the breath of life and that He has, through the Gospel, restored us to the breath 
that we rejected, that we receive the, the, the fresh breath of the Holy Spirit raised to life in Christ. And even as I shared those words, she was soon to be breathing her first breath in the presence of Jesus. And so I'm thankful this morning that her life for me is a celebration of knowing Christ. And it's not the end, but only the beginning of a very long eternity with the one whom she loved most, and that's Jesus. And so coming to His Word this morning, for me, is only appropriate as we look at the text. And as I told Amber last night, she said, what are you preaching on tomorrow? I said, drunkenness. I, <laughs> I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know how uh, the Lord lined up that, but He did, and that's where we are. Um, and so we come to God's Word that is always profitable and that never returns void. Where God says, woe to the drunkard. And I believe that there's a message in this for us this morning. So if you have found your place, let me invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Habakkuk chapter 2, as we begin together in verse 15. The Bible says, woe to him who makes... His neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around you, around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and the violence of the earth to cities and all who dwell in them. And verse 20, But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. God, we recognize this morning that You are holy. That You are righteous. That there is none holy like our God. There is none like You in all of the earth. God, You raise people up and You destroy kings, cities, those who stand against You. God, Your In your hands is life and death and breath and all of these things. And so we declare this morning that we trust You in all that You do because You are good and You are wise and You are perfect. And everything that You do is for our good and Your glory. And we trust You, our God. And we ask that You would help us to see the ungodliness and the wickedness around us and that we would declare the glory and the truth of our God that You would be lifted up in every place and in every city and in every nation, that Your glory would be made supreme above all things, that Jesus would be declared as the only name that is able to save, and that, God, we would not give ourselves to the foolishness of the world. Keep us holy and pure before You. We pray that we would honor You with our lives. And if someone is here who is never trusted in Jesus Christ and who is under Your wrath, I pray that today would be a day of grace and that they would receive Your salvation, forgiveness of their sins, 
that can only come in Jesus Christ. We pray now that You would open our hearts to believe what is here in Your Word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. This is the fourth woe to the nation of Babylon, though they are unnamed. It is the fourth time that God says woe to those who are wicked in the earth. And we know from the context that He is pointing specifically to Babylon. The one who would rise up against Israel. Who would come against them in judgment by God's hand. Habakkuk would ask the question, why, O Lord, would You bring an even more ungodly nation against Israel to come and deliver Your judgment against them? And yet, he says, no, even against Babylon, I will bring my judgment because no one ultimately sins against the Lord and just simply gets away with it. God always judges all sinners. And how does He do that specifically here in the passage? By bringing an ungodly nation against His people. But He's showing them that not just bringing this nation against them, He will ultimately judge them for their sin. He will pour out His wrath against them. How specifically? Well, verse 15 says, Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Babylon clearly had a problem with wine. And not only a problem with wine, they had a problem with wine that would lead them to manipulating and shaming others through their use of wine. And furthermore, not just shaming others, but doing so and finding sexual pleasure in it. Now, the Bible speaks of wine in two different ways. Maybe you're here this morning and you would say, yeah, preacher, wine, wine is a bad thing. We should absolutely reject it. The Bible condemns the use of alcohol. And I would just caution you to slow down and let's ask what the Bible really does say. Because above all things, we must be biblical. Amen? We've got to be careful. At the same time, there are some of you that go, no, the Bible doesn't condemn alcohol. Man, wine is a good thing. You should enjoy it and, 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 and use it. and it's, it's, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with alcohol. It's just drunkenness. And I would say to you, slow down. Be careful. Because we must be biblical in all that we say and do. So what is it that the Bible speaks of concerning wine? We don't have time to completely unpack this this morning, nor do I believe that it's the intent of this passage. We'll see further what it really is intending. But we do need to at least identify two biblical truths or two biblical subjects when it comes to wine and the way the Bible approaches wine. Number one, the Bible speaks of wine as a blessing from God and a symbol of abundance and celebration. I don't have that for you there in your notes, but you might jot that down. The Bible speaks of wine as a blessing from God and a symbol of abundance and celebration. Just so that you're not taking my word for it, Psalm chapter 104, verse 13 and following says this, From your lofty abode, speaking of God, From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate. 
that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. This is only one place, Psalm chapter 104, that begins to describe wine as a blessing from the Lord. All of these things He has given, causing the grass to grow, plants to cultivate, that food might come forth from it, wine might come forth, come forth from it, and by the way, the effects of that wine to gladden the heart of man, and oil to make His face shine. This passage in no way condemns the use of alcohol, nor does it only promote the use of alcohol for the sake of medicinal use, but it actually recommends alcohol to gladden the heart. It's interesting that God has given wine for the sake of a blessing. Wine is involved in the very first miracle of Christ. He gives wine for the purpose of celebration there at Cana. And it's fermented. We could have that conversation, but John chapter 2 makes it very clear that it is the, the aged wine, the, the wine that is saved for the end. Wine is one of the two main symbols in the Lord's Supper. The New Testament makes crystal clear that Jesus Himself drank wine. He never became drunk, but He drank wine. And so we must recognize that the Bible does, in fact, speak of wine as a blessing from God and a symbol of abundance and celebration. And quite frankly, that one makes me very uncomfortable (laughs) because that's not the way that I was raised. I was raised, the use of alcohol by the Christian is strictly forbidden. But if we're being biblical, we must be honest with what the Bible says. Secondly, the Bible also speaks of wine as a mocker and a brawler, and a danger. So before you jump on that first train and ride it all the way to the end, notice that the Bible is very clear of the danger of alcohol and the sinfulness of drunkenness. Proverbs 20 and verse 1. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is a brawler. And whoever is led astray by it is not wise. In other words, you drink and you become the mocker and the brawler. This is what inevitably happens. You lose control and inhibitions and eventually it leads way to violence or a lack of restraint and other evil actions or wickedness. Or Proverbs chapter 23, and this is pretty vivid. Listen to these words. Proverbs chapter 23 verse 29 says, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I will not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. In other words, he's saying it it attracts you, it draws you in, it causes you to desire and to want more, and and you lose all control, all thoughts of of danger, all feelings of compromise when you stand at the top of a mast. You're willing even to jump off of a building and think that you can 
fly. We've all seen the crazy drunk, right? And the clear picture in Habakkuk chapter 2 is not the former of these two ways of speaking about wine, but the latter. The, the warning of Habakkuk chapter 2 that, that Babylon is clearly in danger of violating the warnings of Scripture against wine and have clearly crossed the line in what God intended for it. And it's used as a metaphor, not just simply to point to their, their drunkenness, but even to point to their pure pride, their selfishness, that they have a, a thirst for pleasure and power and prestige. Go back to verse 4 and you begin to see just the beginnings of this, even as this, these two verses set this kind of shadow over the rest of the chapter. We've already read these before, but notice verse 4. He says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. And he contrasts that. He says, But the righteous shall live by faith. And then from verse 5 and following, all of these woes are descriptions of this one whose soul is puffed up, who's not upright within them. And what does it look like? And verse 5, he already begins to talk about this issue in Babylon. He says, moreover, wine is a traitor. And in case you thought that they were just having a little bit of a social drink, it says it's an arrogant man who is never at rest. They're always desiring more. His greed is as wide as Sheol. The word there is death. And the parallel thought is, like death, he, never, he has never enough. Death is no respecter of persons. Everyone will die. Death is never satisfied. It will not ultimately be satisfied until Jesus conquers it in the end, ultimately and finally. Amen? That's when it's gone. I'm looking forward to that day. But until then, wine is just like death. This desire to have more and more. It's a thirst for pleasure. We'll see a little bit later that the wine in Babylon flowed freely. It was always five o'clock in Babylon. And it's a picture of their pride and their love for pleasure. They could never get enough. But wine, as much as it seems to promise satisfaction and ultimate joy, it only deceives. Because the more drunk one becomes, the more and more sure of himself he becomes but the reality is quite the opposite. He's like the man that, st that stands on the top of the mast and thinks he can jump and fly, and yet he cannot. He's filled with wine. The word here, filled, is like, has its root as the cloak. It's like a, a cloak and dagger. It hides its danger. It's a false sense of pleasure. For a while it promises pleasure, but in the end it leads to destruction. And that's why there's so many warnings against it in Proverbs. Far more people are going to have a problem with drunkenness than they are with not, with, with not having a drink. This is why it is so dangerous. You get to the main point in verse 15, and it's not just about 
Babylon having a drink. Notice in verse 15, Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. They're not satisfied to get drunk by themselves. They need others to join in with them. And by the way, this is the nature of it, right? People have what are called drinking buddies for a reason. We don't want to just do it by ourselves generally. We want to invite other people to the party. The fact is, it's actually a testament to a bigger picture of sin. Sin is not oftentimes content to be alone. In our sin nature, we want, to in, we want to drag other people. We insist on it. Dragging other people into our lifestyle. This is what Paul meant in Romans chapter 1 when he said that though they know God's righteous decree, those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. It's desire for others to join in. Who is it that's joining in with Babylon? Well, it says it's their neighbors. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. And it could be that others, they're encouraging to come and be a part of that in Babylon. But it's not just others in Babylon. Notice it's their enemies. Because even as they pour out their wrath, verse 15, they make them drunk. Even as they conquer their enemy, they're giving them alcohol to drink, wine to drink, in order that they might become drunk. And furthermore, verse 15, that they might gaze at their nakedness. The idea is lust. Some would even go as far as to say this may be that Babylon was raping their captives. It's an evil thing to even think about someone doing such a thing. And yet, it's not the only time that we see it in Scripture. And perhaps not even the most heinous. You may remember the story of Lot and his daughters who purposely got him drunk in order that they could do the very same thing that Babylon is doing. Or Noah's drunkenness. Remember, he ended up Naked. It's interesting that sexual sin almost always accompanies this practice of drinking much and becoming drunk. There is even the passage of the one we love very much, David, who after his own scandal, he, instead of confessing his wrong, goes to the husband of the one whom he had violated. And he says to this husband, come and drink. In order that he might lay with his wife and the entire scandal might be covered up. This is the story of drunkenness in our world. And if ever there was a warning in this passage that should be crystal clear, it is this. Do not be drunk with wine. Do not be drunk with wine. It concerns me greatly how casual of an approach we take in our day when it comes to the drinking of alcohol, especially among young believers. The Bible says that it is a traitor. Wine is a traitor in verse 5. It's treacherous. It promises much, but only delivers destruction. I shared with you again and again over the course of the last three weeks that there are at least three purposes of this text. 
One, to convict the guilty. Two, to encourage the oppressed. And three, to instruct the righteous. There is a very clear instruction for us about drunkenness in this passage. It is inconsistent with the Christian life. We, we read in Ephesians chapter 3 that we're to look carefully how we walk. We're to guard our walk carefully. And I would say to you, Christian, that it is oh, oh so important that you watch your walk because how quickly we can stray from the things that Christ has called us to. It can be in a moment before we even realized how far we had fallen. And it is a slippery slope. So he says, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. And in the heart of walk, of learning how to walk, he gives this very clear contrast. Verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. The spiritual life is being full of God's Spirit in much the same way that we would be full of wine. Not in the midst of being drunk with it, but being led by it. Every time that we, that we give ourselves to drunkenness, we become a slave to that wine, a slave to that alcohol. And what, the, what, what Paul is saying to the church is you, you become enslaved to Christ in such a way that everywhere the Spirit blows, you go. That you're controlled by the Spirit of God in your life. There's warnings in 1 Corinthians given not to the ungodly, not to the lost, not to the world, but to the church. And he says in chapter 6, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And in the midst of this list of things, one of those things is drunkenness. There's a great danger, I believe, in the previous generation, to have an unbiblical view of what the Bible teaches concerning alcohol and drinking. We simply looked at alcohol and drinking and lumped it all together and said, you should absolutely abstain from alcohol. And I would say, for many and for me personally, that is my conviction. But I believe that there's an even greater, an even greater danger in this generation who, yes, praise God, desires to be biblical. But even in that desire, I think that we are prone to fall into this trap of walking over the line when it comes to alcohol and simply making it casual. A joke. Be careful, Christian. Walk worthy of the calling. And be careful when you say and just try to dismiss it, but I don't get drunk or I don't drive when I'm drunk or however you want to justify what it is that you're doing. Our need is for Christ. Our desire for Christ to be full of who He is. And if that means abstinence from alcohol, that's what it means. And so be careful. But this text, though we spent a lot of time on it so far, this text is not a message primarily about drunkenness. In fact, this text is more about something that's happening in the midst of their drunkenness. It's very interesting. The drunkenness of, Bab of the Babylonians is clearly sinful. No question about that. But notice how the Lord responds to them. 
He responds to them in verse the end of verse 15 saying, You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Verse 16, You will have your fill. He says, What you desire you will be completely full of, but it will evidence itself to be shame instead of glory. And so he says, Drink yourself. You drink. You've been forcing Israel to drink. Now you drink and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. And utter shame will come upon your glory. You see, Babylon is not just drunk on alcohol. Their drunkenness is on alcohol, yes. But in that drunkenness, they're seeking something. And the drunkenness on alcohol becomes a pathway toward that something. What is it that Babylon is drunk on? Their own pride. Their desire to make much of themselves. To to give themselves completely to pleasure. To think of themselves more highly than they ought. To overestimate who they are. To exalt themselves above God. Though their judgment is completely impaired, ultimately it is a pathway toward destruction. This is their aim. They seek to publicly humiliate all of those around them in order that they might build themselves up and in essence, make themselves to be God. The point of getting them drunk was not simply just to have them join their party. The point of getting them drunk was to publicly shame them so that they might be lifted up. And the warning here is to the puffed up, remember. We've already read that. The puffed up who seek to expose others and shame others and disgrace others even by doing the shameful and the disgraceful both in their own life and in the lives of others. That's what God is responding to here and He responds in kind. What is the message of the text? Those who find pleasure in shame will be exposed by the judgment of God. Those who find pleasure in shame will be exposed by the judgment of God. Now you can apply that to drunkenness, certainly. The public shaming of others, even as you invite them into this, into this lifestyle with you, you can apply that, certainly. They were finding pleasure in shame and calling it glory. They were celebrating it. And yet God would expose them just as they had exposed the nakedness of others. But you can apply the same shame to our own shameful acts and it may even go beyond drunkenness or seeking to shame others. And we do this in our culture. We do this in our lives. We somehow are willing to engage in the things of life that the Bible calls shameful even to do it under the cloak of something else. To keep it hidden, the danger tucked away. As long as nobody knows about what's going on, we can keep it private. And we even, in many instances, engage in shaming others in order that we will feel better about ourselves. There's plenty of shame that happens within the church, isn't there? When we look at others and try to make ourselves better than them by shaming their acts and their choices. I want you to just hear this morning 
that Babylon and Israel are both in the pathway of God's judgment. There is none righteous, no, not one. We all, no matter who we are, what our background is, whether we were raised in church by nature and by choice, we stand under the judgment of a holy God. Realize this. There is none worthy of public shame more than we are. We're guilty before God of our sin and deserving of His judgment. Praise God, the only reason why we can even stand without shame and without guilt and without pain and without condemnation is because of Christ and Christ alone. It's the only reason. So may we stand in His righteousness. But even as we stand in His righteousness, I think about the shame that will come upon us even as it did come against Israel. I think about the pastor in Canada over the course of the last several weeks. Anybody following that story? James Coates, anybody seen that on Facebook at all? Anybody show hands? If you haven't, you should go look up his name. Having church there in Canada, he's been arrested and literally, quite literally, told if he doesn't quit preaching the Gospel that he'll remain in prison. That was appealed and the judge decided that they were right in what they did. And he remains in prison today, shamed for the preaching of the Gospel. I think about John MacArthur in California and others who will be standing like him, preaching the Gospel, who will be shamed for the sake of the Gospel. Students, I think about you in your public schools, even, even in Christian circles, some of you standing for your faith, who will be shamed for the Gospel. I think about you, Christian employee, the area of life that you serve, the company that you serve, may be shamed for believing what you believe. The response of God is shocking, isn't it? Just as Babylon had enticed others to drunkenness and exposed their nakedness, publicly shamed them, God would invite Babylon to drink deeply of His wrath and expose their own nakedness. Three things that we see about the judgment of God here in this passage. What it looks like. He says, number one, that you will be filled with shame. You will be filled with shame. Verse 16, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. He looks to them and he says, Babylon, I know what you see, what you think you're celebrating. I know this looks like victory. I know this looks like what life is all about. I know that you seem powerful even now, but the very thing that you're drinking even now is for your shame instead of your glory. This is what the sinner always calls glory, is shame. The sinner calls wrong right. It's what we do by nature. Listen to Isaiah chapter 5. It says, Woe to those who, are, who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Listen to verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Isn't this a description of the time of the judges? When everyone, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, I want you to know this morning that we in America are in the place of doing what is right in our own eyes. We have essentially abandoned, if not entirely, for the most part, we have abandoned the truth of God's Word in this nation. 
We're doing what is right in our own eyes. And he says, woe to us. Woe to those who are, listen, heroes at drinking wine. Valiant men and mixing strong drink. It's interesting that in the midst of drunken parties, it's always a, it's always a joke about who can take the most, right? You're always the strongest if you can take the most. And if you can't take much, then you're a lightweight. And what the Bible says is, woe to you who think you're a hero if that's your life. The one who acquits the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. God says this is shameful. You will be filled with shame. The word filled is the idea of drunkenness. It's drunk on your shame. It's ironic because it means satisfied. The same word that's used in verse 5 that says death is never satisfied is now used here in verse 16 to point to the satisfaction that comes to the wicked and its satisfaction only in shame. The end of our sin is always shame. It always is. No matter what it promises. The glory we find in it always comes crashing down. It's like the unending hangover. (laughs) It always promises much and pleasure for a season, but in the end it leads to destruction. It's exactly the picture. In fact, the word shame here, you might attach to it putrid shame. The, The meaning of this is literally a picture of vomit spewing from the mouth. Their glory is only vomit. Be careful. Be careful how willing you are to give yourself to sin because it only leads to shame. Why is it that God will make, and what is it rather that God will make you drink? Number two, he says that you will drink of God's wrath. Verse 16, the latter half says, drink yourself. The implication is God is the one mocking And making you drink. He's mocking those. He says, just like you're making the other people drink, you drink it yourself. You take the cup. What is it that they will drink? Verse 16 says, the cup is the Lord's right hand. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. Why His right hand? His right hand is always a picture of strength and power that upholds the righteous and ultimately destroys the sinner. It's a clear picture of God's wrath. Jeremiah 51 is, makes the image of God's wrath in this cup very vivid. Jeremiah is saying about Babylon, he says, flee from the midst of Babylon. He's speaking to the captives that are there after they've been conquered, after they've been in exile. He says, flee. Let everyone save his life. Be not cut off in her punishment, for this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. Strong word. The repayment He is rendering her. He says in verse 7, Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand. In other words, Babylon was the cup from which all of the nations were receiving His wrath. Making all the earth drunk, the nations drank of her wine, therefore the nations went mad. But verse 8 says, suddenly Babylon has fallen and been broken. Wail for her. And he goes on to describe the destruction that is due them. 
It's Babylon's turn to drink of the Lord's wrath. They had been God's instrument of wrath against Israel. But now God is judging them for their own sin. Interestingly enough, you may be familiar with the story of Daniel chapter 5. In Daniel chapter 5, there was a vision that appeared, a hand writing on the wall. In the story that evening, the Babylonian king was slain. God was beginning His judgment against Babylon. Darius began to rule, then eventually Cyrus of of Persia. And then he declared that all the captives could go free and Babylon was essentially no more. That vision came in the midst of a drunken party. Daniel chapter 5. We better be careful how quickly and how casually we approach alcohol and how willingly we shame others. Third, not only will you drink the cup of God's wrath, but you will be fully exposed. Verse 16 says, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The, the words there are very graphic. You can get the picture, a shocking picture in the text. He says, you drink the cup and you show your nakedness. Utterly exposed. You're prancing around and celebrating around now like you have got the victory and yet your shame will be made clear when your nakedness is exposed before all. That's what's underscored in verse 17. The violence done to Lebanon, stripping the forest bare, destruction to the beasts, it's exactly what's going to be turned onto the heads of Babylon. Just as they stripped the forest bare, their lives would be stripped bare and their sin would be utterly exposed. The Bible says that it's terrifying to fall into the hands of the living God. But oh, how often we place ourselves in that position, thinking that we can tempt God with our sin and disobedience against Him. We think it can be done in the shadows and and only public glory would be ours. And yet in the end, the story of our lives will be, oh, how, how foolish we were to think that God did not see. To think that somehow we could rise above God's authority in our life and we could do whatever we please. You see, the truth of the matter is those who find pleasure in shame will be exposed by the judgment of God. Now hang with me because this is where this gets good. Babylon is only a picture Yes, in reality, historically, the sinfulness of Babylon ultimately judged by God. But, Babylon is only a picture of all of the sin and all of the wickedness of the world. We will read again about their demise in the end. Revelation chapter 14 picks up this picture of this worship that's happening around the throne of the Lord, the 144 thousand there, the four living creatures that are singing before the Lord. These who are blameless, these who have been saved. This message of the Gospel that's being proclaimed in verse 6, an eternal Gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. 
fear God and give Him glory. This is the Gospel of Christ. To know Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. And listen to what verse 8 says. The story of the wicked will be this. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Then over in verse or chapter 17, the same picture in verse 5 says, Babylon the great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And the picture in these two chapters is God's response against all sinners. And the truth of the matter, church, is this, this should be against me. This should be against you. We are not ultimately the faithful in Israel. Jesus is the only faithful one. Do you see this? We are deserving of God's judgment. His wrath poured out upon us. But the Gospel is the good news that Jesus received our shame. That Jesus received the full cup of the Father's wrath. And that Jesus received our nakedness so that you and I might be set free. So that we might know God and enjoy Him forever. This is the good news of the Gospel. We're no longer under God's wrath. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 20. The mother of the sons of Zebedee came. You remember the story? They came to Jesus and they said, we want to be first. Like Babylon, they're saying, we want to be, we want to be in our pride, we want to be first and best. We want the best seats in the house. And Jesus says, you don't know the cup that you're asking for. Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I'm about to drink? What is He talking about? Matthew chapter 26. They go to Gethsemane. Jesus begins to pray. He takes Peter and the sons of Zebedee with him. The same two sons. And what does he pray in the garden? He says, wait here. Verse 39, he says, going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will but as You will. The Gospel is the news that Jesus has received the shame that was due us. No longer are we being made a disgrace, but rather, we are in Christ set free from our shame. No longer do we have the wrath of God abiding on us, but we've been set free from the wrath of a holy God to know Him To know Him as Father, as Savior. The One who loves us and gave Himself for us. And Jesus receives our nakedness. You remember on the cross when He was stripped bare to receive the public shame. But more than that, our sin laid bare before a holy God. And Jesus receives all of it to Himself. So that the wrath reserved for me is satisfied in Christ. And I'm free forever. This is the Gospel. Now some of you who may be here this morning, you've never received that Gospel. It is time today for you to turn to Christ. To know Him. As Savior and Lord of your life. And to be set free from this guilt and this condemnation and the wrath of a holy God. He'll set you free this morning if you'll turn your life and trust in Him. 
with every head bowed, every eye closed. We want to give you the opportunity today to trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Others of you in this room, maybe you just need to be reminded today that you've been set free from God's wrath. Maybe today you are wrestling with the sin of drunkenness. You're wrestling with alcohol. It has a hold on you. And today Jesus wants to set you free from that if you'll turn to Him and trust in Him today with all of your heart. It means it must be brought into the light. needs to be exposed. You before God confessing your sin to Him and saying, Lord, I need You to save me from this, to deliver me from this. Today He will do that. If you'll come, trust in Him. Submit that to Him. Confess that to Him today. Ask Him to forgive you. Repent of it. And turn only to Christ. And so with every head bowed and every eye closed, in just a few moments, we're going to stand. And the opportunity will be yours to come to this altar. Maybe pray, spend some time with the Lord. Others of you might need to come and confess sin to the Lord. Others of you maybe want to come and join this church. Maybe someone's here who's never trusted in Jesus. You need to step out of the place where you'll be standing and come and say, Pastor, today I want to know Jesus. Will you help me? I'll help you. Today you can follow Him, follow him with your life. And so with every head bowed, every eye closed, would you stand with me all across the room? Even as Stephanie begins to play, I'm going to pray and our invitation will begin. Lord Jesus, have Your way in this place this morning. We ask that You would help us to submit to You with our lives. Bring honor and glory to Your name in this place, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. You come even as Stephanie begins to play this morning. Before we go today, I want to ask you that you would pray for me tomorrow. Um, uh, I, I share this with you often. Anytime that um, that I'm going to Pensacola for reasons like this, um, but I, I will I will have to preach tomorrow, um, my grandmother's funeral, and that's going to be um, one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. Um, 
And I've been asked multiple times why. Um, why I would even agree to that because I need to be ministered to. <clears throat> um, but there are at least two reasons. And one of those reasons is that um, much of the reason that I'm a pastor aside from the call of God in my life, is because of her. Her love, her support, her prayers, her encouragement, constantly, constantly. Um, and encouraged me to stand on the truth of God's Word. And it would be only appropriate that I stood on that for her tomorrow. And two, I, like many of you, have family members who do not know Christ. And they will be there tomorrow. And unless Christ, they have no hope. They have no hope. And so pray for me tomorrow. Um, I know that you will. Let's pray together before we dismiss. Lord Jesus, we thank You that You are good. That You are always with us. That we don't need a bottle, but we need Christ at every moment of our lives. Thank You that You have promised to be there, to be with us, to never leave us or forsake us. And we pray, God, that there would be a sense of Your presence even as we leave this place in every heart, in every life, as we endeavor this week, even this day, to lead lives that are worthy of the Gospel in the things that we consume, in the goals that we set, in the words that we say, <coughs> in our attitudes and in our actions, we want to be pleasing to Christ. So help us. Help us to honor You, to honor Your Word, being faithful to and honest with what You've called us to. I pray now that tomorrow, even as You meet with us in a moment of worship, God, that You would be there that Your Holy Spirit would draw the lost to repentance, that You would encourage us as Your children, that we would know Your presence there and Your comfort and Your healing. Thank You, Lord Jesus, that she is in heaven with You. Totally healed. And we are thankful that we will one day see You face to face all together. To treasure and to know You for all of eternity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. We also invite you to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching for Southwide BC. Thank you for listening, and may you continue to worship, connect, grow, and multiply as you follow Jesus Christ.